Ahoy hoy. Welcome in. I hope everybody is healthy. Hope everybody is safe. I'm Tyrell McLaughlin. You can find me on Twitter at TNFF Tyrell. That's two L's. And follow the rookie rankings and all that stuff at True North FFB and the Travis Sealer of approval at TSEAL14. So lately, I've just been compiling away when it comes to putting the puzzle pieces together with these players changing teams. And I figured I'd hop on and throw out some of what I pulled away. So with a few days to let some of this breathe, we'll compare some of the new faces from their old situations to their new places. And we can also hit some of the fallout inside those offenses. I'm just going to dive in right away because there's lots to hit. And if there is anybody I do not talk about, it's because me and Travis hit them last weekend in that episode. It's named Stefan Diggs Wet Cement. But I am going to dig in. Uh, I want to see what happens with those deep targets, the volume, some of that stuff for Diggs. But to kick it off, I'm going to start in Atlanta because they've been busy. The Falcons lose Austin Hooper, they've cut Devontae Freeman, they signed Todd Gurley and traded away one of their second round picks for Hayden Hurst. Run game first, always establish the run. And man, if anybody should actually heed that mantra, it is the Falcons. Atlanta has been tied for the third fewest rush attempts in the last two years straight. And talking about the run game, we knew Atlanta would add a running back. I just think a month ago, nobody would have thought it was former Georgia boy Todd Gurley. The reason we all thought Atlanta was assuredly in the running back market had very little to do with Devontae Freeman's downfall, or freefall, I guess. And I won't spend much time on Freeman, but his durability and deterioration is just half the reason he was no longer a viable running back in fantasy. Because we thought Devontae Freeman was projected to be a touchdown-dependent running back in 2019 to an extent, but he could not even get into the end zone on the ground. Devontae Freeman didn't score a rushing touchdown until week 14 in 2019. And so far as the efficiency, that fell off a cliff. He was 46th out of 48 running backs in yards per carry on next-gen stats and second worst among all running backs in breakaway percentage. And then remember some of this for when we get into Gurley in a second because, man, no big plays down in the Dirty South last year from the run game. Just 15 rushes of 10-plus yards for Devontae Freeman, and that's just an 8% explosive run rate. That ranks bottom five among all running backs with 150 carries. And that lack of an explosive element in the run game was so glaring in 2019 for Atlanta, it just really jumps off the page. Atlanta had zero running plays of 40-plus yards as a team last year, and they had just six runs of 20-plus yards, bottom five. So unbelievably, obviously, what this team needs is a running back who can make something out of nothing, like a big play back. So now enter Todd Gurley. Is he that guy? Not, not to me, not no mo. My thoughts are if you're looking for an explosive aspect to your run game, why not draft a young running back? So when I think about it, the only way I can rationalize the thought process is maybe Gurley can suffice in 2019. Now you can add a couple more significant pieces in the draft and then dipping your toe in the 2021 running back class. That will not make you shiver. It's going to be a very top heavy bunch. However, that is putting a lot of faith in Matt Ryan aging well and same goes with Julio. But talking about the running game, let's assume Gurley is the man and let's look at the situation Todd Gurley is coming from and compare it to the one he finds himself in now. Because I want to show you how much these two teams have contrasted one another. And it's interesting what I found. So in the last three years, the Falcons and the Rams have pretty comparable volume directed to the running back position. It's surprising since Atlanta has the fewest rush attempts over the last two seasons combined in the NFL. But both teams have averaged about 25 touches to the running back position per game, just over 20 carries per game. So the first difference we're going to point to, it's small and it's to be expected with Sean McVay at the helm over the last three years. But the efficiency is higher in LA, just under 100 yards rushing per game compared to 86 yards per game on the ground for Atlanta running backs. 
When we start looking at the passing work, that's what I was most taken back by. Even knowing the Rams were second worst in the NFL this year in running back market share, not to mention total targets and catches to the running back position. Also, man alive, running backs in Los Angeles had just 260 receiving yards. That was dead last in the NFL. The next lowest team had 460 receiving yards from their backs. But I still expected the 2017 and 2018 seasons to prop up the numbers for Todd Gurley and Los Angeles running backs. So taking a look here at the passing stats for the running backs between the two teams, overall over the last three years, Atlanta has thrown to the running backs just over 100 times per season, 17% of their targets go to the backs. When you compare it, it shakes out to about one extra target per game. And the same goes for the catch totals, where Atlanta averages 74 catches by the running backs, the Rams just 60 running back catches per season over the last three years. So again, about an extra catch per game in the running back room in Atlanta during that time frame. If we squint, though, again, we'll see the efficiency come into play. Sean McVay and his ability to put his players in positions to succeed, it's just outdone by very few, and Dan Quinn would never enter that conversation. So regardless of Atlanta having 223 catches by the running back since 2017, Los Angeles Rams backs totaling just 181 catches, on a per-game basis, the teams both average about 36 receiving yards from the running backs. So those are some of the small differences that we could probably have guessed, you know, better yards per carry, better yards per attempt in LA under that offensive-minded head coach. But let's get into the huge catalyst to Todd Gurley's fantasy dominance in 2017 and 2018, touchdowns, 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 touchdowns. Since 2017, the Falcons running backs have 43 total touchdowns, and as a team, they average under 10 rushing touchdowns per season. The Rams running backs have 21 more touchdowns in that stretch. Top five in running back touchdowns all three seasons. And per season, that's about 21 touchdowns per year versus 14 touchdowns per year to running backs. And 17 rushing touchdowns to under 10 rushing touchdowns on average from Atlanta running backs since 2017. And so that, that definitely stands out. But before we heap praise on Todd Gurley or try to make connections between poor rushing touchdown numbers in Atlanta and Gurley coming in, let's not. <laughs> Because, yeah, the touchdowns are a huge marker, but the red zone rushing attempts are to thank for it. In the last three years, the Rams have also been top five in red zone rushing attempts from the running backs every year. They average over 75 rushing attempts from the running backs in the red zone per season, and that's compared to just 54 per season in Atlanta. So we're not going to bank on the touchdowns from Todd Gurley. I mean, the efficiency dip we were most likely expecting, or at the very least, we shouldn't expect Gurley to bounce back in yards per carry or anything. But I think the touchdowns could be the big difference between Gurley paying off his ADP in fantasy drafts and not. And I will get to his ADP since the trade, but I want to look at one more thing, the explosive rushing I brought up. Because I feel like I did my best to express Todd Gurley is not coming in to fix their rushing touchdown woes. Because they would really need a massive uptick in red zone carries as a team and a shift in the last decade of tendencies from their head coach, offensive coordinator, and Matt Ryan. But off the top, I said the biggest problem for the Atlanta running game is the black hole when it comes to the big plays. Freeman being one of the least explosive running backs in 2019, and Atlanta as a team barely having a 10% explosive run rate. So can Todd Gurley replace that component of the run game for the Falcons? We have to ask ourselves that. While among all running backs with 150 carries, Gurley ranks 19th out of 28 in explosive run rate with 9%, Freeman 24th with 8%. And again, explosive run rate is just the percent of the player's carries to go for 10 plus yards. But to wrap up this Atlanta running back front, this likely spells the demise for Ido Smith or Brian Hill, you know, for fantasy. Could Ido mix in steal passing work? Maybe. Could Brian Hill vulture a few touchdowns? Maybe. 
what's more likely is that Atlanta spends a mid-round pick on a running back. And if they don't, they are dumb. I'm telling you, because for the love of God, they need somebody like Keyshawn Vaughn, Anthony McFarlane, even a Raymond Calais super late. All those players had over 18% explosive run rates in their college career. And as for my takes on how this went down, like the vibe that's surrounding the running backs in Atlanta now, I am disappointed. I really thought they would use one of those two second round picks on a big name running back. And we'll get to Hayden Hurst quickly, but yeah, they sent one of those two second round picks in the NFL draft to Baltimore. And I'm telling you, if come April, players like Jonathan Taylor or J.K. Dobbins are on the board, they're going to be kicking themselves, I think. Those are some explosive running backs. And yeah, if you ask me, they added the wrong Georgia running back anyways. Uh, If you look at DeAndre Swift, 20% of his carries as a Bulldog went for 10 plus yards, and that's the third best rate in this whole class. And to touch on Todd Gurley for, you know, his owners, what, what I wonder what they're thinking, to be honest. Probably just on a roller coaster here. If you think about his release, not knowing what will happen, then he goes to one of the few teams with a big need at running back. But yeah, I think we are seeing the decline. And again, it is the big plays. If you look at just all the 10 plus yard rushing and receiving plays, Todd Gurley had the biggest drop off in 2019. He had over 550 less yards off of 10 plus yard plays in 2019. The only two play, the two players behind him, like he was, he had the biggest drop off. Two players behind him were Tariq Cohen and James White. And to be honest, I've always kind of struggled with the Todd Gurley is elite conversation because outside of that stretch during his rookie season, Gurley has been very dependent on play calling and his offensive line. Like that's an understatement, but also just the pass catching work. And that that was the main factor to his letdown in 2019. It could be a signal for the, the slight decline in talent for Todd Gurley post arthritic knee, right? Because if we look at some of these passing game stats in the past game, the yards per route run fell off a cliff in 2019. He ranked 60th out of 64 qualified running backs with a 0.52 yards per outrun and his six drops contributed to that and I think his diminished ability through the air could have factored into that head scratching market share to the running back position we saw in LA and then to touch back on the touchdowns uh, the worst of all in 2019 we saw Gurley seed work in the red zone all of his numbers fell considering he led in every category imaginable throughout the entire league in 2017 and 2018 But if Gurley sees just 56% of the red zone carries in Atlanta, a team offering far fewer running back scores, he is in big trouble for fantasy, and he'll have no ceiling other than being anything other than a running back too. And so far as his ADP, we're going to have to let the dust settle because he is trending towards that second, third round turn, ironically, where we've seen him drafted a couple times throughout his half decade career here. But yeah, I I think we're going to let the dust settle on Todd Gurley for sure. So way too long. Let's go a little faster. Let's actually, let's stay in Atlanta and let's stay with ADP risers. Let's hit Hayden Hurst really quick. Because since being traded to Atlanta to replace Austin Hooper, nobody has seen a bigger spike in their ADP on MFL. He is up 53 picks. And Hayden Hurst is going ahead of Irv Smith, right around Eric Ebron, who maybe we could touch on later. Uh, He's also going behind Greg Olson, behind Jack Doyle. Hayden Hurst, sort of a funny move if you lose Austin Hooper, a big part of the offense. So I guess Hayden Hurst is the answer, former first round pick. We know Hurst for a couple reasons. He's the player Baltimore prioritized in that first round over Lamar Jackson. And coming into his draft process, we knew him as the Brandon Whedon of tight ends. The amazing 31-year-old freshman. And Hayden Hurst is older than Austin Hooper right now. He's 26 years old and Hooper is a year younger. But when I dug in, I was actually very surprised how effective Hurst was, even on limited work in his NFL career so far. Hurst was even more reliable than the ultra-sure-handed Austin Hooper when you look at drops and stuff. And on PFF, his yards per run was slightly better. 1.69, very nice, and 1.65 for Austin Hooper. Right around guys like uh, Hunter Henry, Zach Ertz, by the way. So yeah, I do not see this as a, a huge downgrade from Austin Hooper for Matt Ryan and co. 
And so Hayden Hurst, he, he's an easy dude to make fun of. He was drafted two rounds earlier than Mark Andrews, who's, you know, obviously passed him on the depth chart and so good. And Nick Boyle was clearly ahead of Hayden Hurst as well, making Hurst the tight end three on his team. But I think that was a reflection of how good Andrews is, if you ask me, and also the way Baltimore ran their offense, needing Nicky B on the field to block at all times. But what we saw in Baltimore last year was legendary market share to the tight end position. So Hurst still saw 39 targets, caught 30 of them. And talk about those hands, just one drop by HH. And then if we look at what Austin Hooper leaves behind, because that's kind of the interesting argument when you look at this Atlanta passing game. The gap to be filled is very appetizing. Just under 100 targets, 800 yards receiving, 75 catches. But we will not see Hayden Hurst inherit all of that. And me and Trav talked about it even in the recent wide receiver landscape epi, but with Atlanta finishing just a dozen completed passes shy of the NFL record, like Atlanta pass catchers split almost the biggest pie in NFL history. So some of that volume is available, but you know, a lot of it's going to shrink. Not to mention we have to introduce the running game, which should see a, a much bigger inclusion than being a bottom five group. So essentially we shouldn't try and distribute the passing work because a lot of it, it's going to be transformed. But that doesn't mean that Hayden Hurst won't be fantasy viable. That doesn't mean there's no path for him to get there. Hooper leaves a ton of high leverage work behind, right? Austin Hooper had about 25% of the red zone targets. And we know that doesn't necessarily mesh with the players there. Like Julio Jones' skill set doesn't really line up with those 10 zone targets. And I mean, we can hope he doesn't have another 9-game touchdown drought. But I think Hayden Hurst can serve a niche in this passing in this pass-heavy offense right away in the red zone. And inside the 10-yard line where tight end fantasy seasons are made and broken. Because Austin Hooper was Matt Ryan's top target inside the 10-yard line over the last two seasons. Hooper saw over 25% of the team's targets in the 10 zone. And 9 of 10 Hooper's touchdowns since 2018 have come inside the 10-yard line. So the work is there. Hurst could seize the opportunity. In his two seasons, Hayden Hurst has caught just 2 of 4 targets in the 10 zone. Just one touchdown. So not a cause for optimism, but also a useless sample size. I just think it's funny because on brand, all his red zone stats are behind Mark Andrews, Nick Boyle, and if we're compiling over the last two years, Max Williams as well. But I am buying Hayden Hurst, and he is certainly on the tight end radar for streaming goes in 2020. So before I hit another big signing, maybe I'll backtrack and quickly hit the Rams. I had the Rams here to talk about because Todd Gurley leaving is kind of huge. It vacates over like 200 carries, of course, but it also vacates the second most goal line carries. And actually, all the goal line carries vacated reside in L.A. The only two teams in the NFL with more than 10 goal line carries in 2019 are the two teams in L.A. And yeah, I won't spend too much time here. I want to let the death settle and even wait for the Los Angeles Rams to add a running back, right? For the record, though, I'll always be higher than the market on Daryl Henderson. And at the Combine, we heard Sean McVay talk him up a month before they cut Dodd Gurley, a year after they spent a decent pick on the Memphis weapon. But as for the offense, I think it's similar. We're going to see this offense transform a little bit. What we could see is a robust passing game. And I've done my fair share of tire pupping when it comes to the wide receiver position in LA because they are top five in fantasy points and PPR as a group all three seasons under Sean McVay, regardless of Goff's limitations. And it's not the most exciting passing game ever, but compiling can conquer. And so, like, to give context how I'm thinking here, remember Jarvis Landry putting up top 10 wide receiver numbers in Miami? It was just so opportunity-driven, we hated it. But the one phrase we use to describe his usage and others like him is they are extensions of the running game. And the Rams have two wideouts that they use that way, and they have two guys who are two of the best receivers in football on short average depth of targets and creating after the catch. So I'm talking about Cooper Cup and Robert Woods. They both finished top five in yards after the catch of the wide receiver position in the NFL. And they could finish first and second in 2020. 
Because my point being, the Rams can compensate for Todd Gurley through the passing game. Because Goff's limitations, I mean, he under 12% of his passing yards came on deep balls last year, 20-plus yard targets. That's third worst distribution among all qualified quarterbacks on next-gen stats. And his 1.8% deep ball touchdown rate was the worst in the NFL. With that, Jared Goff was still third in passing this year. Uh, third. So how is that possible? It's, it's what we're talking about. It's yards after the catch. So the wide receivers are doing it for him, and wide receivers in LA combined for over 2,100 yards after the catch this year, first in the NFL by far. And if you're yelling, Brandon Cooks, dude, Cooks wasn't there for deep passing. True, Cooks in the books here a bit. But the wide receivers for the Los Angeles Rams had 1,941 yards after the catch in 2018. That was the fourth most in the NFL. So I'm saying the wide receiver group can more than support this offense. And if they don't add another name of substance to this backfield, there is multiple top 15 wide receivers coming from this Rams offense for fantasy. Because it's already a top 5 position group to chase for fantasy football under Sean McVay. Everything you want to see, you get in an offense from the perspective of the wide receivers here. And even the little things that make for a high-powered offense, you get in the Rams offense. Like the team's red zone touchdown rate was top 5. They just dominated the league in play action passing. And just schemes that open up space for these dangerous weapons in the passing game. So if I'm trying to predict outcomes this early in the offseason for the Los Angeles Rams, we should just expect an abundance of Robert Woods and Cooper Cup, a heavy dose of Cup and Tyler Higby in the red zone, and I'm buying the shit out of this passing game right now. And as for the as for the running game, I mean, I mentioned Hayden Hurst and his ADP trending way up. The running backs in this Rams offense are in the same boat heading up the ADP stream. It's still very fresh, but looking at Daryl Henderson's ADP, he shot all the way up to about the 6th, 7th round turn right now after being a 10th to 12th round pick before. And just to go humble brag, he's my highest owned player in about 30 best balls so far this offseason. And actually, along the same lines, feel free to hit up truenorthffb.com. Read one of my first articles I ever wrote there. It's uh, comparing Todd Gurley and Terrell Davis because their career arcs are pretty comparable, and I wrote that about a year ago now. So time flies. Great. Isn't he? And so yeah, with Daryl Henderson, if he escapes the duration of April without LA adding a significant name to this backfield, man, sky's the limit for his ADP and his upside for fantasy and the running back market share that we saw cliff dive in 2019. Okay, so I'm going to steer the ship to a big name at the running back position, and this guy should have signed a deal last year like Tyler Johnson should have declared for the draft. Melvin Gordon to the Denver Broncos. This will get you a little closer to that dream of yours. It's not the Dallas Cowboys, but it's a start. Oh, the Denver Broncos. I think the Denver Broncos is pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Well, explain to me why it isn't. (sighs) You just don't understand football, Marge. Really interesting when you look at Denver being a team with under 5% vacated carries, just one goal line carry available. So right away, we'll just say he kills Royce Freeman. And Freeman had 175 touches last year. Freeman also had 40 catches. Talking about Melvin Gordon, he takes a hit to the wallet going to this high elevation in Denver, doesn't he? And then John Elway and the Broncos, they continue to mystify me. I mean, you have house money with a hometown kid in Philip Lindsay. You're not ready to compete, in my opinion, even with increased playoff teams. Uh, like, what are you doing? And really, what they need is a satellite back, if anything, or a square, a three-square running back if you want to replace Philip Lindsay as your lead back. Despite the volume, Melvin Gordon, he's a well below average pass catcher. Nevertheless, we're downgrading Philip Lindsay, and he had over 250 touches last season. If you want to look at the red zone stats too, Lindsay and Freeman split carries, 27 and 24 red zone rushes respectively. And then at the goal line, Lindsay outcarried Freeman 2-1. to 
But no Broncos had more than 60% of the goal line carries last year, and that was also true in 2018. Then conversely, Melvin Gordon saw more than 60% of his team's carries in 2019, despite missing four games. And then you look at Austin Eckler beside him. Actually, Austin Eckler's rushing touchdowns in 2019 all came in the four games Melvin Gordon was holding out. So that definitely has to worry us if we expect any semblance of a ceiling for the running back two in Denver. And yeah, Royce Freeman is dead to me. And it's, you know, I actually, I liked him coming out. I had exposure in his rookie season after seeing his shiftiness in a telephone booth in the preseason that year. But he's, he's been a drag ever since. His speed, Freeman's inability to get the outside, it puts a cap on his upside. It makes him almost scheme dependent, really. Actually, if he landed in Atlanta, <laughs> they ran a ton of inside zone last year. Another, that's another thing we have to watch for Gurley in Atlanta. Does Dirk Cutter change some of the run schemes, I say, probably, or that he better? But yeah, anyway, sell Royce to five Freeman if you can get anything 2023rd, whatever, because he probably still has fans out there. And I was totally kidding, by the way, about Royce Freeman in Atlanta. The, the big plays is my whole beef with him. Another running back with shit explosive run rate. And then for the other guy, what am I doing with a player I'm invested in for Dynasty? A guy I've touted, Mr. Lindsay. I moved Philip Lindsay down to like the ninth round in my rankings, my best ball rankings. It hurt, but the situation is just so bad now. Melvin Gordon will be the bell cow in Denver. When I look at the ADP trend, the market still has Lindsay in the seventh round in ADP. It's just a few days since Melvin Gordon signed that two-year $16 million deal, though, so that, that might just be a slow reaction, if anything, because he was going in the fifth and sixth rounds even before the signing, so pretty late. And I think a lot of us saw the writing on the wall with Denver. They were meeting with some big names, even guys like J.K. Dobbins. So, yeah, Lindsay is a very frustrating hit to take if you own him in Dynasty. If Lindsay does settle in the ninth or 10th round, though, he makes for a great zero running back target, in my opinion. And I need a new target in that range of the draft post-Hendo hype. So yeah, guys, that's the easy stuff. What about Melvin Gordon? What's his new value? Will he make the most of the situation? Because he is coming from ideal usage. And looking back a couple weeks ago, when I saw Melvin Gordon listed ahead of Kenyon Drake on most outlets' top free agent available lists, I was baffled. Like, give me Drake. And to me, post-landing spots are on opposite ends of the running back fantasy scale so far as teams were targeting, you know what I mean? The Cardinals drastically improved their run game with the moves they've made this offseason, have the Broncos with the addition of Melvin Gordon. Uh, debatable to me. So from, from the fantasy lens, there's numerous things to give us pause for thought as well. When we imagine no offseason, possibly condensed activities if they do happen, that doesn't bode well for Melvin Gordon. He looked like hell coming off his holdout in 2019. And in fact, he killed the entire running game and in turn the Chargers team last year. Like they lost four straight games when he returned. They had less than 40 yards rushing as a team all four of those games once he came back. So I know Melvin Gordon has a lot of supporters. For fantasy though, I'm pretty sure his best days are behind him. And for me, it really is just always the story of what could have been. Like, he's not elite, but he's pretty close for fantasy. But however we felt for Melvin Gordon, he was largely compiling his success on the back of passing work and touchdowns. Because it sure wasn't efficiency. Like, Melvin Gordon was below four yards per carry in 2019. That was not unlike four of his five seasons in the NFL now. Just brutal efficiency. And I brought up the what could have been feeling. It's that he he puts huge stretches together. But when we step back, it's so underwhelming. Melvin Gordon's under 1,000 yards rushing in four or five seasons. And he's missed games in four or five seasons as well. So now I, I, think, Mel, I think Melvin's in a far less appealing spot for fantasy on a team who did not spend a first round pick on him. And knowing Melvin Gordon could probably see a lot of stacked boxes with Drew Locke at the helm. His, his efficiency last year is really alarming. In 2019, once he came back from his holdout, 60% of his runs went for three or fewer yards. That was one of the worst rates in football. 20% of his carries went for zero or negative yardage. And just for reference, someone like Zeke Elliott, that's, that number is just 11%. And then if we go to the other side of things, you want to look at the big plays, you want those big plays. They're, they're kind of in question all of a sudden. Only 9% of his runs went for 10 plus yards last year. 
And the yards after contact per attempt are what I would really point to as a smoke signal that, you know, as he gets into his mid-20s here. Because if you look back, Melvin Gordon, the big plays were there for him in 2018. Almost 16% of his runs went for 10 plus yards. And that was on a far bigger sample size as well. The irony though, that was among the league lead in explosive run rates in 2018. But Philip Lindsay was better and Lindsay had more 10 plus yard carries in total that season. So for Melvin Gordon, we have to ask how much of a drop off can we expect for the big touchdown totals and the passing work he's seen with the Chargers? Because I don't think people realize how spoiled Melvin Gordon's been. Just looking at the passing work, he's averaged 60 catches, 375 yards receiving per season in his career. Must be nice. And not even accounting for receiving touchdowns, but 100 fantasy points per season off his passing volume, over 6 points per game, extra touchdown for fantasy owners. And speaking of touchdowns, as a Charger, Melvin Gordon averaged 9 touchdowns per season. And yes, that includes his 0 touchdown rookie campaign. If we remove that, he scored 12 touchdowns per year since his rookie season. So the passing work first, less actionable because we know Austin Eckler drives some of the numbers in LA. Having said that, we can't overemphasize how much Phillip Rivers has leaned on the running back position while Melvin Gordon was there. And in the last three years, over 27.5% of Phillip Rivers' passes have gone to the running back position, over 150 targets per season. So right away, Melvin Gordon goes to a team that throws to the running back 5% less and averages over 30 less targets to the position per season. And the production is even more noticeable. Running backs for the Chargers have over 115 catches per season since 2017, and that's 25 more per season than Denver backs. And then moving into receiving yards, we're keeping Eckler in mind for the Los Angeles Chargers, but they average over 1,070 receiving yards to their running backs per season over the last three years, the most in the NFL, just unreal. And that's compared to just 650 average receiving yards for Broncos backs. So lots of Eckler to account for, but Melvin Gordon has seen more than his fair share. He's averaged over seven targets, over five catches per game in the last three years. And that's about exactly what the Broncos have averaged as a team. So yeah, Melvin Gordon was clearly a benefactor of his status and the situation in the Chargers organization. And none of that data I laid out should be used for projections when we look at Melvin Gordon in orange in 2020. And lastly, let's quickly scope the touchdown totals. They're what Melvin Gordon has been most reliant on. And I think the touchdown totals, they give us more optimism, I think, for fantasy because Denver running backs, they've scored more touchdowns in recent years than I would have thought. They pale in comparison to Los Angeles, though. (laughs) In the last three years, Chargers running backs have scored over 20 touchdowns per season, 61 in total. Denver running backs have scored 37 touchdowns in three years. And if I just quickly lay out the fantasy points, we're looking at the Chargers averaging over 30 points per game from the running back position over the last three years, and the Broncos backs average 25 points per game or just under in that span. So we're expecting a scale back workload in the passing game, far less efficiency there too. But I don't want to be too scared off by those touchdown totals because they are driven by receiving touchdowns at the running back position, and those will evaporate for Melvin Gordon in Denver, but we can probably transfer a lot of his other skill sets. And so when we look at where is where his value is going to land, like if we can get Melvin Gordon at a reduced price, he could pay off for fantasy, but he has a lot of baggage attached to him. But I do think we see a good rushing touchdown season from Gordon. Okay, so let's go to, let's do a quick quarterback run here. Let's do Teddy Bridgewater to Carolina. This is kind of an odd signing. I've been saying to get in on the ground floor with the Matt Rule hire, the more importantly Joe Brady hire as the offensive coordinator there in Carolina, but I wasn't expecting them to bring in a bridge quarterback, pardon the pun, but I wasn't expecting such a safe quarterback either. But if I harp back to the whole no offseason program, so much is changing in Carolina. Like maybe Bridgewater is kind of the perfect guy. He is familiar with that offense Joe Brady's bringing in from the season they were both in New Orleans. 
And it makes me wonder if teams worry about the lack of offseason activities. Like, Carolina has more internal change than any team in the NFL, more coaching turnover, more franchise faces going out the door. So I wonder, like, is that going to be a tough classroom to get good behavior out of on your first day? Like, especially nobody's met anybody and you're forced to start teaching the class at 8 a.m. sharp. So Bridgewater does a lot of things, but most of all, he could be the bridge. Like, sorry, but I do think it's a thought. A really hectic offseason, inability for coaches and players to mash the quarterback and the guy calling the plays being on the same page. That has to be a top priority in the offense, and Carolina should at least have that. And that could be some of the very little continuity that exists in Carolina for 2020. And then starting to get into the fantasy stuff, like some of the other things Bridgewater does, uh, exactly what the coach says to do, right? Nothing more, nothing less. Uh, under under Kyle Allen, though, and Will Greer, that was just such terrible quarterback play in Carolina. So even if we get Checkdown Charlie version of Teddy, it will help fantasy owners. And that's just based on the, on the fact the Panthers' offense won't be abruptly ripped off the field constantly in 2020. So I think Christian McCaffrey and DJ Moore, they get the biggest upticks right away. Two of our favorite fantasy players. But one topic I do want to think about in the near future is how this impacts DJ Moore specifically because he crushed it for us last year but remained a floor play. It was a great floor play, but we want that next, next step, you know? And we worry without that quarterback in place. Now with Teddy Bridgewater there, I sort of worry still. But, you know, like I said, what we're hoping as a whole is the volume is so high because Carolina is not turning over the ball constantly and the offense is just on the field more sustaining drives. And DJ Moore, he has astronomical volume in his range of outcomes if that if that plays out. And I think that's more or less what we'll see. And then keeping it going with, with Teddy's vibes, like a lot has been made about the Panthers having two wide receivers in the top 10 for uncatchable deep target rate. But, you know, the deep passing was lots made of that. That is not what Teddy comes in to fix here, guys. So we, we need to scale back some of the ceiling talk, especially and the Curtis Samuel destined to be a star for fantasy talk. And while I still think we should be trying to get in on the ground floor in this offense, we just we may still need that dangerous quarterback that can unlock and unleash the schemes that we need for someone like Curtis Samuel to break out. Because with Joe Brady calling plays and that set of weapons in Carolina, it's definitely easy to see that unfolding. But with Teddy at the wheel in Carolina, I fear we're going to see more of the 2018 Saints offense than the historic 2019 LSU offense where Joe Brady was constantly taking shots and incorporating a mobile quarterback and stuff. For real football, this whole thing makes a lot of sense though. And for everyone's fantasy floor, you got steady Teddy and it keeps Carolina competitive. Teddy went undefeated with the Saints last year, 5-0 and and he won in college. He's a winner. But yeah, we have to worry about how safe he is for fantasy. That's always been the knock on Teddy Wright, and yeah, he is too safe. From a fantasy football perspective, I won't have a ton of eyes for Teddy Bridgewater. I think his rushing upside is non-existent, which is a long story in itself, eh? But yeah, in those five games he played last year with the Saints, Teddy had just one game of 27 fantasy points. It was against Tampa Bay. Remember, they were complete pass funnel. The other four games, Bridgewater was under 20 fantasy points all four times. And Teddy's now started 34 games in his NFL career. He's hit 21 fantasy points just three times. And so it really is just because there's no rushing upside there or big passing touchdown games. And then when you dig deep, our concern, it stems from his dot, the air yards, all that stuff. On next-gen stats, his intended air yards per attempt ranked dead last among all quarterbacks below Flacco, Keenum, Drew Locke, even Derek Carr. And next gen stats, they have this air yards to sticks metric. I love it. It shows how much the ball travels in the air relative to the first down marker, right? He scored negative 3.3. Nobody was lower than negative 2.5. Garoppolo, Carr, and Mariota were the only other quarterbacks had worse than negative two air yards to the sticks. So we know deep shots are really in question for Curtis Samuel, who was 10th in the NFL in deep targets last year, even though he had one of the worst catchable deep target rates. 
But how we think this offense is going to shake out with Bridgewater, I think first and foremost, the offense, it's going to condense. All non-essential personnel must be downgraded. Because <laughs> one thing I thought I could pull and dish is the target distribution in his five games for New Orleans. Because remember how much that offense condensed when he was there. It was just Michael Thomas and that's it. And it kind of serves as to why I waited so long to bring up Curtis Samuel, why I haven't even mentioned my boy Ian Thomas. But during his five-game stint in New Orleans last year, we saw Michael Thomas dominate, utterly dominate, and it was made even more impressive when you look at the target distribution. Michael Thomas crushed on under 50% wide receiver market share in those games from Teddy Bridgewater. So we noticed he really locked into his best option, and one who operates close to the line of scrimmage, so DJ Moore, he checks both those boxes. And then Christian McCaffrey has absolutely nothing to worry about either. Weeks 3-7 to seven last year, Alvin Kamara was peppered with targets by Bridgewater. He threw almost 10 times per game to the running back position. Almost 30% of his passes went to the backs. They had the third highest running back target share in the NFL over that span. So yeah, not looking at Teddy in fantasy, but he definitely serves to keep DJ Moore and Christian McCaffrey in their current ADPs. Or for DJ Moore, it gives us confidence to reach out and scoop him in the third rounds of our fantasy drafts. And then Curtis Samuel, I mean, he's going to be boomer bust. And I bet... We see a little bit of a transformation in his work. Maybe it comes closer to the line of scrimmage. We should see a mix, like somewhere in the middle between Ohio State, uh, Curtis Samuel, and then Carolina Panthers, 2019, Curtis Samuel. All right, I should, maybe I should touch on Cam. I've really, I've talked a lot of Cam Newton this offseason. TNF have, was kind of driving that bus that he would not be back in Carolina. So yeah, let's roll on Cam really quick here. Let's go chronological story time mode on Cam Newton. So he finished as the quarterback three, the quarterback four, quarterback three in fantasy to start his career. He had over 585 rushing yards and over six touchdowns in all three of those seasons rushing. Since then, he's been the quarterback seven, the quarterback one overall, that MVP campaign, followed by quarterback 16 performance, the quarterback two, then the quarterback 13, and God knows what he was last year. But five seasons, Cam Newton has been the quarterback four overall or better. The other four seasons, he's been the quarterback 13 or worse in fantasy. And the whole point is, in his big years, he's needed the rushing output. He had over 585 rushing yards and six touchdowns in all five of his game-changing seasons. And so, you know, here in 2020, Cam, for the first time, finished outside the top five quarterbacks in back-to-back -back seasons for fantasy owners. And his outlook is tough, right? 30 years old now, we have no idea where he's going to play in 2020. And we have no idea if he can pass a physical at this point. So hard not to say the trend is that his career is winding down in rapid fashion with Cam Newton. And we, we really wonder where he's going to end up. He needs that rushing production, but it, it hasn't been there lately. And you wonder if it ever will be again. Cam's actually in the middle of a big rushing drill right now in his career. He has gone 19 straight games below 65 rushing yards. So the big seasons, they seem like days of past. Cam hasn't had a 30 total touchdown season since that MVP campaign. And I wonder if there is any in-between with Cam. Is he destined to finish as a top five quarterback or a quarterback two, right? There's no in-between. Uh, it sure looks like it. So yeah, guys, if, if there's anybody in your league who's still holding out hope or an owner to target for name brand sake, super flex leagues, you can always sell a quarterback. I, I'm doing it like yesterday with Cam. And I know the Chargers said they won't pursue him, but that if Cam lands there, I'll still be scaling back my expectations, but that, that makes a lot of sense. Him and Anthony Lynn, that would be his last ditch effort. Because there is that other side of the argument, it's narrative street, but yeah, I hate betting against Cam, and an angry Cam Newton with something to prove, it's that scares the poop out of me. Judas Priest Barber is one of those flaming bags again. Don't put it out with your boots, Tad. Don't tell me my fist is devil, woman. <laughs> Again. He called the shit poop. <laughs> this is the best night of my life. <laughs> I'll get you damn kids for this. You're all gonna die. 
Okay, let's go to another really exciting deal here. The Stefan Diggs trade. Fresh Diggs. Very well done on both sides, if you ask me. For Minnesota, Stefan Diggs is making his way out of town last year. So the cap relief they get is much needed, and they get it, they obtain some serious draft capital in that deal, unlike some teams trade away their number one wide receivers. But yeah, it's a real win overall for the organization when you think of how little capital they had to invest in either Adam Thielen or Stefan Diggs as well. And Diggity Dow, he was in a tough spot. We had to feel for the dude seeing how talented he was. Incredible to think back. Last offseason, we're coming off Adam Thielen and Stefan Diggs being top 12 wide receivers in fantasy, both of them. But it's also interesting looking back to the last offseason when we think of Kubiak coming into the front office, into that fold in Minnesota, though. And with the help of research, smart minds like Warren Sharp, we really did see the run game avalanche coming in Minnesota. And in fact, the Vikings saw 40% less points in PPR from the wide receiver position overall in 2019. And if we look at how bad his situation was last year, Cousins targeted his wide receivers less than half the time in the passing game. That was already a small pie compared to the year before. But, you know, you look at the formations and everything. It was just a recipe for fantasy wide receiver death. And the frustration was compounded when you look at Minnesota being the most efficient team when targeting the wide receivers, 10.2 yards per attempt. And then check this one out. Minnesota targeted their wide receivers the least in the red zone in 2019. Just 38% of their passes in close went to the receivers, lowest in the NFL and pretty inexplicable. And by the way, I went into the formations lack of wide receiver two sets, let alone wide receiver three sets in Minnesota during that wide receiver points per game episode. That's in the TNFF feed. But yeah, that's what led to, you know, Stefan Diggs missing snaps. Imagine a team having Stefan Diggs healthy on the sidelines. So yeah, all of that rolls into what was the 2019 season for Stefan Diggs, where he made more than half his bread on deep passing work and really did all he could considering. Okay, okay, so as we wade into this, there's a couple ways we can interpret it. It's inarguable Stefan Diggs is one of the best route runners in football. He has the best contested catch rate in the NFL over the last three seasons, and he is one of, if not the best, deep threat in football. But we have to ask, what will his usage look like in Buffalo, coming off polar opposite seasons in Minnesota when it comes to usage? And the answer is probably something in the middle. But before we move into the new situation, like we see one of the best wide receiver rooms all of a sudden in Buffalo, eh? John Brown there, who's also previously been thought of as a deep, uh, deep threat player, although last year he did flash a PPR upside element to his game for sure. But yeah, amazing to say out loud that Buffalo has a great wide receiver group and they know it <laughs> because we look back and they had Robert Woods, all those dudes, but they were just clueless at that point. But yeah, digs, new digs. And if people are worried about his volume, like last year in Minnesota, Stefan Diggs managed to be a wide receiver two in fantasy on less than 100 targets last year. That was for one reason, his deep targets. And now in Buffalo, I think Stefan Diggs is going to lead the league in deep targets. He had 27 of them, you know, more than 20 plus yards down the field last year. That was the second most deep passing opportunities in the NFL. And he was number one in the NFL in receiving yards off of deep targets. 635 deep receiving yards accounted for over half his total yardage on the year. And don't get me started on his touchdowns, because almost all his touchdowns came on deep passes as well. So I mentioned John Brown. Let's talk about this fit in Buffalo for Stefan Diggs. The Bills landing spot, it was an obvious one for a wide receiver, right? They especially needed a contested catch wide receiver, somebody who can make it happen in the red zone. And so there's a minority of people still saying that they need that. Like, they, they don't love this landing spot or love the acquisition because he doesn't fill those niches. I totally disagree. I mentioned nobody has a better contested catch rate. Diggs has also been really solid in the red zone. I think this is what we'll point to first and foremost for how Diggs can pay off his ADP in fantasy. Last year in Minnesota, Diggs tied or set a new career low in red zone targets, catches, and touchdowns. Diggs had just five targets in the red zone last year. If we look over his career, he's caught 37 of his 52 red zone targets, 15 touchdowns in the in the red zone, and right there, that's some easy touchdown regression to the mean we can spot, even for a wide receiver changing teams. 
And Diggs has also performed like a true alpha inside the 10-yard line in his career, unbeknownst to most. And actually, not including last year when, when he had zero catches on his two targets in the 10 zone. <laughs> but Diggs has 20 targets, 12 catches, and 9 of his 12 catches inside the 10-yard line have gone for touchdowns in his career. So I think this is a very good match. I won't get into Josh Allen right now because there's a lot of parts when it comes to his deep accuracy. But overall, the Bills offense is trending up for fantasy. And a team we have long since associated with establishing the run, we could see the pass attempts of Buffalo creep into the 550 range. And man, when they drafted Josh Allen, I truly never thought I would say that. It's kind of scary to imagine and hard to actually say without throwing up that we could see the offense take a big step in Buffalo. Like we could want the pieces in this passing game. And just looking at it, the Bills had no volume, like they are bottom 10 in pass attempts, completions, passing yards, so we can, we'll anticipate those figures to climb, because we see Buffalo was well above average in completed air yards, explosive play percentage, and 20 plus yard passing plays, all of which Stefan Diggs specializes in. And that, actually, that reminds me, so the Bills, they had 54 plays of 20 plus yards last year, very nice, tied for 12th in the NFL. 40 yard plays, Buffalo was tied in 17th, they had 8 passing plays of 40 plus yards. There was three wide receivers in the NFL tied for the league lead with eight catches of 40 plus yards by themselves. One a damn, Stefan Diggs. And one more thing I want to touch on just to alleviate some concerns about maybe John Brown's fantasy value. Let's look at Josh Allen because he's leaned on the wide receiver position pretty heavily. I think first, an increase in overall passing volume. That's what John Brown owner, owners should hope for the most, right? But if we do see it, the wide receivers, they stand to benefit the most. The tight end has not been prioritized, and Josh Allen targets his running back at as low of a rate as anybody not named Lamar Jackson. And those tendencies played out big time last year. 66.5% of the Bills' passes went to their wide receivers, and that was the third highest rate in the NFL, and their wide receivers had the sixth best market share in the red zone as well. So, if we move past the gut feeling thing, <laughs> everything kind of points towards Diggs being in a good spot to blow up for fantasy. I think it should just come down to price, because admittedly, guilty myself, but we have always overvalued Diggs a bit in fantasy drafts based on upside and what his ceiling is. So we can't let his value jump the shark, you know. We don't have to look far back. OBJ changing teams last year as an elite wide receiver in his prime. It's not an exact science. And if a scientific conclusion is necessary, these guys lose fantasy points for the most part. We know predominantly wide receivers changing teams, they struggle for fantasy. And almost invariably, top wide receivers perform worse for fantasy in their first season on a new team. And the numbers don't lie. It's it's pretty exploitable. And I think it's uh, Jack Miller on uh, Rotoviz. Also, Blair Andrews, he's written about some good research regarding wide receivers changing teams. Google wrong read Blair Andrews changing teams or Jack Miller changing teams on Rotoviz. You'll find it. But I really think Stefan Diggs could populate that exception status. He will crack 100 targets. It's crazy he didn't last year. Inexcusable, really. And he should be far more consistent as well. Just one time in 2019, Diggs saw double-digit targets in a game. Once. The year before, he had nine games with 10-plus targets. So that volume comes back up, and Diggs will see a big bounce back in the red zone volume. And whether he maintains his deep ball efficiency or not, the volume in that facet of the game should go up. Diggs could lead the NFL easily in deep targets this year. Okay, so I'm going to actually cut this one in half. I'm going to do half these guys on the next one and just make it a two-parter here. We still got Eric Ebron, Jordan Howard. We have tons of guys here to still to cover a lot of these lame wide receivers like Aguilar. But a lot of the pieces in the offenses will be affected, so we do want to talk about them. And a reminder, you know, check out that Stefan Diggs wet cement episode. We went over a lot of stuff, me and Travis, on that one. And as we know, Travis always keeps me in line when it comes to thoughts and all that stuff. So, you know, a really good listen. Uh, download and subscribe if you would. Follow at TrueNorthFFB, at TNFFTyrell, at TCL14. And please, don't work too hard. Stay safe. You